This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we'll, have, uh, we'll just open in prayer. We already had communion, so you should be in fellowship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We thank you for the illumination it brings, for the fact that it teaches us how to understand reality and how to handle difficult things in life. Father, we understand from Scripture, and we are confident that you control all things. And Father, yet at times it seems as though things are outside of our control and things seem chaotic. Yet you have provided for us a solution in your word, and that is your promises, and to exercise the faith rest drill. Now, Father, as we continue our study from Third John 3 in terms of walking in truth, learning how to claim and apply promises, we pray that you would challenge us with these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're continuing our study in Third John, but we will not be in Third John. John emphasizes in 3 John, verses 3 and 4, the importance of walking in truth. In plus the dative of aletheia means to walk by means of truth. Jesus prayed to the Father, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. So when we are to walk by means of truth, it is by means of the word of God, by means of the promises and principles that are provided for us in the Word of God. Now, we take one element of that, and we have summarized that under a terminology called the Faith Rest Drill. And there's a book called the Faith Rest Drill by Pastor Theme out on the rack, plus a smaller uh, booklet called Christian at Ease. And I would encourage you, if you have not read either one of those, to do so, because the foundation, the foundation skill for everything else in the Christian life is the faith rest drill. Talk about the fact that there are ten problem-solving devices. We've talked about the um, whole concept of the soul fortress built brick by brick using those those ten problem-solving devices or spiritual skills, and they don't function unless you have a foundation of the Holy Spirit the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we sin, we're immediately out of fellowship and we lose the filling of the Holy Spirit. So the first problem-solving device, the first spiritual skill, is to learn to keep short accounts with God, confess your sins, make sure you're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, so that whatever you do, it's done uh, on the basis of doctrine. It accrues to spiritual growth. It accrues to divine good. 
But the foundation of the spiritual life then is the filling of the Spirit. It is the Christian way of life is a supernatural way of life that requires a supernatural means of execution. A Christian life that is so-called Christian life that is built upon a way of life that is no different from just a simply from just a simple moral life is not the Christian life. The scriptures teach that we live our Christian life on the basis of the Holy Spirit. So that's the foundation. But the next level, and this gets into the foundational mechanics of living the Christian life after we're filled with the Spirit, is what we call the faith rest drill. And that concept of drill comes out of an athletic or military metaphor where you do something over and over and over again. It's that repetition that builds a habit of thought and a habit of response in life to what takes place when things don't go the way we think they should or when we're suddenly faced with a crisis or all of a sudden we are overwhelmed with the circumstances of life. And the faith rest drill needs to be uh, utilized in minor events day on a day-to-day basis as well as those major crises that come our way. See, too many people think, well, you know, I'll trust God when the big thing comes along. Well, if you're not trusting God and developing that skill, that habit pattern of utilizing the faith rest drill on every little detail that comes along in life, then when the big things come along, uh, you're not going to be prepared and you're going to fall apart and it will probably devastate your spiritual life. So I want to take some time as we look at the faith rest drill and seeing how we do this, how you actually work your way through the process. Now, the faith rest drill becomes the foundation for everything else. For example, the next stage is grace orientation. Grace orientation as a problem-solving device, as a stress buster, recognizes the fact that everything that we have in life is due to God's grace, due to his unmerited love and favor. The only way we know about God's grace is through his word. So the faith rest drill functions by believing promises that relate to grace. Then the next stage we have doctrinal orientation. And in doctrinal orientation, we are orienting our thinking to the revealed plan of God so that we no longer think according to the uh, structures of the human viewpoint culture around us called the cosmic system, but we have exchanged uh, our thinking for divine viewpoint thinking. And then this leads to the next stage, which is a personal sense of our eternal destiny. Now, we have to exercise the faith rest drill to believe in eternity, to believe we have an eternal destiny. God has a plan and purpose that there will be accountability for the believer at the judgment seat of Christ. And that, as we grow past that adolescent stage of the personal sense of eternal destiny, we come to the next stage, which is a personal love for God. This is part of the love triplex, impersonal love for all mankind, as well as occupation with Christ. All of those are predicated upon the faith rest drill. The scriptures say again and again, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
keeping God's commandments is a function of the faith rest drill. So personal love for God is seen through the faith rest drill. Impersonal love for all mankind, loving one another, as Christ has loved us, certainly demands the faith rest drill because you have to love people that aren't lovable, may not even be likable, may be very objectionable, in fact. So that entails the faith rest drill. Occupation with Christ, of course, keeping our focus on Him, also entails the faith rest drill, as does sharing the happiness of Christ or perfect happiness. So the faith rest drill must be mastered before we're going to have real maturity in any of these other areas. So I want to take some of our uh, most favorite promises and take some time to think through them in light of the Word of God, in light of their context in order to understand the dynamics of the faith rest drill a little more precisely. Now, there are three stages in the faith rest drill. There are three stages in the faith rest drill. The first stage is to claim a promise, to claim a promise. The second stage is to think through the doctrinal rationale in that promise. Think through the doctrinal rationale embedded in the promise. Every promise has a rationale, and a rationale is a series of steps or reasoning that goes on inside of a promise. And so it's taking the promise, thinking it through, which is what the Bible refers to as meditation, thinking it through and pulling out from that promise the rationale that undergirds that promise and that strengthens that promise. As we do that, what will occur to us in our thought processes are certain conclusions that must shape our thinking and must become real in our mental attitude experience. So the third step is to appropriate those doctrinal conclusions. Now, it's easy to say that's the step. Those are the three stages. It is not easy to go through those stages sometimes. There are certain events and certain crises and certain uh, at certain stages in our life that somehow we find a little easier to use the faith rest drill on. And then there are other things that seem to strike right at the very core of our soul and of our thinking, uh, and it's very difficult for us to utilize the faith rest drill. And then it becomes a moment-by-moment, minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour procedure that sometimes may go on for weeks or months before we're able to reach that third stage of making the conclusion from that passage or that promise real in our experience. So this morning I want to look at Isaiah 40:31, a promise that is familiar to all of you. Isaiah 40:31. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. We'll come back probably next time to look at Isaiah 41.10 because these two promises are very close to one another. In fact, uh, just ten verses separate, nine verses actually separate these two promises, and they are in the same immediate context. So we'll have to take a look at this. Well, let's start with the first stage. First stage is to claim a promise. 
How do you claim a promise? Well, first of all, you have to have that promise stored in your soul. You have some fragment of a scripture, some phrase, some clause, perhaps a verse, Bible verse or a section of scripture memorized. But the key is, if it's not there in your soul, in your mind, for you to grab it at the time of crisis, then you don't have anything to do. All you're going to do is believe some abstract principle. And trust me, there's all kinds of abstract principles floating around that people think have something to do with the Bible, and they're not trusting a promise. They're just grabbing some sort of... uh, self-help principle like any pagan can do, like any unbeliever can do. So you have to have promises in your soul. Now, to do this, you have to make it a priority in life to learn Scripture. Now, I realize that most people don't do this. It's something that needs to be a part of your daily Christian life is memorizing Scripture. It is crucial to memorize Scripture and to store these promises in your soul. Now, I try to help by utilizing a series of Scriptures again and again and again before I begin each message. I have one set I use on the first hour on Sunday morning, another set on the second hour, another set on Wednesday night, and every now and then I add a new one and change it around, hopefully, uh, or hoping that by my repetition of those promises, they will become embedded in your thinking so that you at least have those promises to utilize. But you should set a personal plan, a personal goal of Bible memory. I remember when I was a kid going to Christian camp, which I think was one of the greatest things that I went through. Now, that doesn't mean all Christian camps are the same because they're not, but I was fortunate at the camp at the time where I grew up, there were a lot of really solid counselors and training, and we uh, there was a strong emphasis on Bible memory, and that uh, came to help me in many ways later on in life. But you can set this as a goal. You can set it as a personal goal. You could set it as a family goal. You could each week decide to work on one verse or two verses a week each night at the dinner table while the family's there. You can drill each other on their memory verse. You can write them out on an index card, tape it to the dashboard of your car so that while you're driving to and from work, you can glance over there while you're stuck in traffic and review yourself on that verse, say it over and over and over again. And I like the way the Navigators uh, taught people to... The Navigators was a parachurch organization and uh, they had a strong emphasis on Bible memory and a lot of contests. And They always had a good method, and that was to quote the reference itself, the address, John 3.16, then quote the verse, and then close with the reference again. And do that over and over again. Because how many times do you say, oh, I know such and such, you kind of get the verse right, but you don't have a clue. It's somewhere, I think that's in Isaiah somewhere, maybe Psalms, and you just don't remember where it's located. Now, I had a professor in seminary, Dr. Ryrie, who was well-known theologian and editor on the Ryrie Study Bible. And Dr. Ryrie used to, when, when it came to exams, we didn't have to give chapter and verse, but we had to give chapter. So for everything we learned, he wanted us to memorize at least the, the book and the, ver- and the chapter where you found the principle. He figured if you could get that close, you could open your Bible and find it. But you should memorize the, go over that in your mind. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16. If you want to, you can categorize it. Salvation. 
John 3.16. You can have verses for prayer. Prayer. First uh, Thessalonians 5.18. Pray without ceasing. First Thessalonians 5.18. Prayer. And that way you categorize those promises and you learn them. Challenge yourself to do that. Challenge your kids. One of the byproducts of memorizing Scripture is it improves mental agility and it improves concentration. And if you are memorizing anything, it will enhance your own concentration and your own memory and your own brain development. For some of us who are beginning to push into those senior years, every bit of mental exercise helps. But for your young children, if you can train them to start memorizing Scripture when they are still just still basically in diapers and barely able to talk, my mother says that the first verse that I memorized was uh, was First John one nine. I guess she thought I must need that or I would need that eventually. She said I will. It was before I was three years old. I had First John one nine memorized, but. I remember when Caleb um, uh, Davy was here. That kid already knew, what was he, four years old or five? Boy, he knew a lot of Scripture memory verses already. And that is something that you should be doing with your kids on a regular basis because as we get older, what sticks in our minds the longest is what got in there first before there was a lot of other stuff there to clutter it all up. And so what sticks with you are those verses you learned. And I find that today, even though I'm memorizing and working on memorizing other passages of Scripture, I'll I'll go through one year and I'll memorize a number of passages of Scripture, and then two years later I don't remember them. But the verses that I memorized when I was a kid stay with me. And that is important. So get into a set, set up a system for memorizing Scripture, you can even go beyond verses to memorizing sections of Scripture, passages, sections of Romans 8, John 3, uh, other well-known passages, Philippians chapter 4, Psalm 23, parts of Psalm 119. These are important promises. You can set up different categories. I'm going to give you a few here, you can look in that book, The Faith Rest Drill or Christian at Ease, and come up with others. For example, you can think about the faithfulness of God in a crisis, Psalm 119.89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness continues throughout all generations. Thou didst establish the earth, and it stands. That's Psalm 119.89 and 90. You could also go to Numbers 23.19. If you have to deal with enemies, Psalm 60, verse 12 says, Through God we shall do valiantly, and it is He who will tread down our adversaries. You could also look at Hebrews 13.6. If you feel down or discouraged or depressed, you could go to, you can claim Psalm 37.28, For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake His godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. You could also go to Isaiah 40:29, the passage we'll look at this morning. For strength, you could look at Psalm 18:2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. We could go to uh, Psalm, uh, to Proverbs 1:33 for for if the safety is the issue. But he who listens to me shall live securely and shall be at ease from the dread of evil. 
for fear, you could look at Isaiah 41.10 or Isaiah 41.13 or Philippians 4.6 and many, many other promises. Now, the one I want to look at this morning is our promise in Isaiah 40.31. And as you look at this passage, there are several things that we should note. When you think about claiming a passage, you should be rehearsing that verse in your mind. Think through it two or three times and note some observations. Now, I'm going to give you some insight into it that I pick up from the original language, and it, is a, it further enhances the study. Note, first of all, that the verse begins with a contrast. But, so whenever you see a verse begin with a contrast, you need to look at the verse before it to see what the contrast is, is based on. In the previous verse, the emphasis is on human strength and human ability. Uh, even the youths shall faint and be weary. The word for youth is nahar, that is young men. No one is more stronger or vib- more vibrant than, than a young man. You take a, an adolescent between the age of 16 and 20s at the peak of his physical conditioning and physical ability, yet even they grow weak. You have a great athlete at 18, 19, 20 years of age, but by the time they're 35 or 40, their strength wanes. Uh, even the youth shall faint, and there, there are challenges, physical challenges, that no matter how strong or physically capable a conditioned 20-year-old might be, there are some challenges he cannot overcome. And then the uh, parallelism, the young men shall utterly fall. This is the word uh, bahor indicating uh, strong, uh, athletic young men. They shall utterly fail. Human strength can only go so far and is, is not capable of resolving every, every problem in life. So there's a contrast between human ability and the divine ability. Second thing we note is the verb, those who wait on the Lord. Those who wait on the Lord. Now, this is an important word to look at those who wait on the Lord. This is the Hebrew verb kava. Q A W. I pronounce it like a V. Q A W A H. Kava. Now, if you look at Pastor Theme's book, you will see, since he's a product of a older education and did most of his work with tools that were not available until just the last few years. He takes a standard view that was taught for years that this has to do with the weaving of rope. And for years you may have heard people preach sermons on this. It's a great illustration that as you take one thread, weave it with another, build uh, one thread to another, that eventually you have a cable. And even though one individual thread may not bear much weight, when you have many woven together, they will bear tremendous weight. And it had the idea of, of patience and waiting. However, that's based on a lexicon which those of us who've been through any kind of seminary training affectionately refer to as BDB. I think I wore one out in three years of Hebrew studies in seminary. BDB, Brown Driver and Briggs. Now, here's a little interesting side note for you. BDB was first published, I think, around 1919. It was early part of the 
20th century anyway. But that was before many, many language studies were, were done. In fact, in 1919, they had not discovered Ugaritic yet, which was a language in the, of the Canaanites, very close to Hebrew, in the northern part uh, of, uh, uh, of Israel. Furthermore, you have discoveries of Akkadian, which is a sister language or a cognate language. And many other linguistic studies had, had not developed in 1919. Now, BDB was the standard Hebrew lexicon up through probably the 1980s. If you have a New American Standard Bible, one of the faults in the translation of the Old Testament of the New American Standard Bible is that the translators just took the words from BDB. It'll have an entry. For example, it would have an entry like kavaf or for the Hebrew, and then it will list various meanings for that word in English. Well, the NASB editors just would go over and pick the word that, that fit that context. And in any dictionary, they list the meanings in terms of the most common or most, most often occurrences. So your first meaning is the most common one, the second is the second most common, third is the third most common. And so the NASB translators went to BDB for their meanings uh, and just took that without consulting more current scholarship or doing uh, lexical work in terms of usage. Well, it, in 1998, there was a revision of an older Hebrew lexicon called Kaler Baumgartner, named after the two Germans who worked on it originally, and it's called the Halot, or sometimes it's called the, just H-A-L, Hal, the Hebrew Aramaic Lexicon of the Old Testament. And whereas BDB was a one-volume lexicon, Hallowed is a, uh, I think it's a four-volume lexicon. And then about a year or so after that came out, there was another uh, six- or seven-volume lexicon that came out called the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis. And in both of these, which represent the current standard of scholarship in uh, Hebrew studies, the basic meaning of kava doesn't have anything to do with the idea of weaving a rope, but it is expectant or hopeful waiting. To wait with hope. To wait expectantly, confidently. This picks up the whole idea that we get from the, the New Testament and the Greek word elpis, which I usually translate confident expectation. This isn't a hope that is just optimistic wishing. This is a hope that is confident certainty. Those who wait on the Lord isn't simply the idea of just sitting back with your hands folded waiting for something to happen, but it implies while that is present, the main idea is those who hope, those who are confidently expecting God to be involved in the process. So those who wait on the Lord are those who have their hope or confidence in the Lord. The third observation is that they wait on Yahweh. They wait on the Lord. Whenever you see that uh, capitalized uh, 
L-O-R-D, you know that it translates the Hebrew sacred tetragrammaton of Yahweh. Those who wait on Yahweh, they're not just waiting. See, you have a lot of people who say, well, things will work out. They just, they're, they're just sort of a hope that somehow, some way, some impersonal force or, or some cosmic deity perhaps or the fates will uh, bring things about and somehow if we just last long enough, things will work out. There's no personal, transcendent and imminent God who is intimately involved in the planning of a person's life that you're trusting in. You're just trusting that somehow, some way, somehow things will work out. That's a faith in faith. That's an empty faith. That's a meaningless faith. That is that is nothing more than some sort of psychological gimmick to try to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That is not what the Scriptures talk about. The hope, the confidence is in a person. It is in the person of God who, when you see that word, as a, if you saw that word Yahweh as a Jew, it always reminded you that God was a personal God who had entered into a contract or covenant with Israel, and it always carries the overtones of God's faithful loyalty to his people. So you're not just simply waiting. You're waiting on a faithful, loyal God who has plans and purposes in human history and they will work themselves out in time. So the contrast is between those who rely on their own strength and ability or in some sort of uh, religious system and those who have a confident expectation on Yahweh. Those who have a confident expectation on Yahweh shall renew their strength. Now this is the fourth observation here is, is the the future tense. What is the result, the consequence of that confident expectation? It's not simply that you'll renew your strength. See, that has the idea of getting new strength. Somehow you're running that marathon through the trials and tribulations of your life, and you've made it past the 10-mile mark, and you've still got 16-plus miles to go, and you just suddenly get a second wind. That's renewing your strength. This is not what this concept has in mind. The Hebrew verb here is the verb kalaf. Looks like this. C-H-A-L-A-P-H. Kalaf. Now this has the idea of change or exchange. Changing one thing for something else or exchanging one thing for something else. And the idea here is it's not that they just get a burst of new energy or get a second wind as they go through the trial, but they are exchanging their strength and power for God's strength and power. It's not that we somehow kind of pump ourselves up to be able to make it through the tough time, but we by having a confident expectation in the Lord, there is an exchange of our strength for His strength. It's His power and ability, not our power and ability. Now hold your place here, and let's expand on this by looking at a a parallel usage of, of these words in the 14th chapter of Job. 14th chapter of Job. 
Now, Job is reflecting on his own trials and testing in this chapter. We know that Job had some of the most severe testing of any human being in order to demonstrate and provide a testimony and witness in the angelic conflict. So as he reflects upon this in chapter 14, he says, in the first verse, we are headed for verse 14, but I want to pick up the context. He says, man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. And that is something we can all agree to. Man is born of woman, has a few days, and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away, flees like a shadow, and does not continue. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me to judgment with yourself? In other words, he is talking with God and recognizing that he has little standing before God. Well, skip down to verse 7. In verse 7 he states, For there is hope for a tree. See, he's in the middle of whining a little bit in this passage. He's talking about man has no hope. But look, there's at least hope for a tree. And the word there for hope is kava. That's our word over in Isaiah 40.31. There is hope for a tree. A tree can at least have confident expectation. If you cut down a tree... If the roots are still alive, then when it gets water, it will sprout again and come forth. Now skip down to verse 14. After focusing on the problem, the, the temporary finitude of man, his inabilities and his weaknesses, he says, verse 10, but man dies, is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last. And where is he? As water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from, the, from their sleep. And there's a real note of despair and futility here. And that's not something that any of us are unfamiliar with. We sometimes become overloaded with the tests that come our way, and we think that life becomes meaningless. That's when we fail and we buy into the uh, depressed Analysis of the world around us. But then, in verse 14, Job sounds a note of confidence. He says, If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. He is focusing on the fact that there will be change. The word wait here is the Hebrew word yachal. It's not kava, but it is another word for hope and confident expectation. And then he says, until my change comes. And there he uses the word chalaf and indicates that this exchange of his strength for God's strength. Now, this is a picture here uh, from Job 14 of how you go through this process. It's not always instantaneous. Sometimes you have to get that promise, you have to claim it, you have to repeat it over and over again, you have to think it through, you have to get out a notebook perhaps, write down observations, think about it, and let that begin to sift through your mind over and over and over throughout the day. It gives you hope then as you focus on God's Word, as you focus on God's Word by claiming that promise, it helps to stabilize your emotions in the midst of that uh, crisis, and the reason is that there is hope not just because you're optimistic, but there is confidence because there is a God 
who is behind the plan. There is a God who is in control of the circumstances, and there's no circumstance, no problem, no difficulty that we face that is too great for the grace of God and for the power of God. And so when we hit these crises, we need to think in terms of why we're going through this suffering. There are nine reasons we go through suffering. The first reason we go through suffering is because of Adamic failure, because of the failure of Adam. Adam's sin is our sin. Adam's guilt is our guilt. We're all guilty of Adam's sin. And because Adam sinned, the entire human race was plunged into spiritual death. And many con- uh, many consequences occurred. Everything from the horrors of warfare, the terrors of famine in various countries, the horrors that you might see, for example, uh, in an in an airplane accident or an automobile accident or in child abuse, uh, horrors that we face personally in personal disasters, whether it's uh, divorce or death or weather disasters or financial loss, all of these things are the consequence of Adam's sin. Therefore, we are, they are, this suffering is a consequence of our decisions in a secondary sense. There is human responsibility for some, for that suffering. The second reason that we go through suffering is because of individual volitional responsibility. This is Galatians chapter 6. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap that you go through a certain amount of problems in your life simply because you made bad decisions from a position of weakness and you're just reaping the consequences of that. Then on top of that, because you are a believer, the Lord may impose some divine discipline in order to teach you some things about the Scriptures. And Hebrews 12, verses 4 through 7, outlines the principle of divine discipline that God, for whom the, those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and scourges alive every son whom He receives. Then the fourth reason we go through suffering is because we are associated with someone who is um, involved in either two or three. If you are married to someone who is making bad decisions from a position of weakness, then you're going to reap the same negative consequences they will. You may think you're an innocent party, but you chose to marry them, so you have a measure of responsibility for that. Or perhaps that you are a child and it's bad decisions from parents, or you are involved in a and in, in, with with a corporation, you may be in a business partnership, or you may simply work for some business where the leaders make poor decisions, and so you are involved in either uh, reaping negative consequences or divine discipline by association. And then fifth, we are in the cosmic system, and because we are in the cosmic system there is a certain amount of suffering and crisis that we will go through. So those are five reasons you have to think it through and say, okay, 
where am I in this mix? Is this a result of my own personal decision? Is it divine discipline? Is it because I'm associated with somebody or for some other reason? Now, sometimes we go through suffering and we can't really identify its direct cause. We can't identify that direct cause. So there are some reasons why we suffer that aren't always obvious. And the first of these is evangelism. Evangelism. Sometimes people go through a crisis in order for, in order to get, in order for God to get their attention for salvation. This would be the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. All of a sudden he knows that he's going to uh, be executed because the jail uh, doors have been opened and the prisoners could escape. And so he is going through a crisis and a panic mode at that time because he sees his life flashing before his eyes, and that gets his attention and prepares him for evangelism. A second reason there may be suffering is so that you can learn doctrine, so that you can learn doctrine. Psalm 119.71, the psalmist says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn thy statutes. Now, I'm not going to ask you when the last time was that you got excited about suffering so that you could learn more doctrine. We'll let you deal with that between you and the Lord. So we have to recognize that Christianity is not simply some form of anesthesia to just drug ourselves in the midst of crisis and to alleviate the pain, but it is so that we can learn things about God's provision, God's power, and God's promises. Then, sometimes we suffer so that we can be a witness or testimony to neighbors, friends, and family. We go through that, test, that suffering so that how we respond is going to be a witness or testimony to the grace of God. 1 Timothy 1.16 A fourth reason is so that we can be a witness in the angelic conflict. We're going to be a witness in the angelic conflict to demonstrate that God's will is good and perfect. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Ephesians 3, verse 10. And then finally, one reason that we suffer that may not be clear is given by Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, 4, so that we can comfort one another. 2 Corinthians 1, 4 states that we comfort others with the comfort with which we have been comforted. We go through that crisis so that eventually we can help encourage others when they go through that crisis. Okay, this gets us started in claiming a promise, looking at Isaiah 40.31. Next time we'll come back and go to the next stage and looking at the doctrinal rationale undergirding the promise with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged with its truth and its uh, infallibility. Father, we pray for If there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we thank you for what we have learned this morning. Challenge us with your word to consistently apply these promises to our our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.